uh, man, he's just been so gracious to allow our family to be a part of his mission, continue to move forward. So now we see the mission moving forward in a different part of the city, but it also continues on here. It's not done here. Uh, one of the things that I want to address, so multiplying is fun, it's exciting, but it's also hard, right? Like th- there's some difficulty that comes with that. So like for instance, uh, Pastor Austin and Ricky aren't in the room right now. Uh, our worship director and kids director are both out south now. And, and so there's some changes in there. And those kinds of changes have a sense of, of loss. You can feel that. And, and it's okay to just kind of admit that. Like that's tough. Like the people that we normally see on a Sunday morning, we don't necessarily see them. And so uh, man, multiplication, just that, that is a part of the gospel. That's why we, we do that. Um, it's because we're going to miss those people. And so let me give you some just terminology to go with that. It's called a gospel goodbye, right? So the thing that joins us together is also the thing that sends us out as well, is, is, is the gospel. And so uh, it, it is a gospel goodbye, so it's hard, but it's, it's good because the gospel continues to move forward. Uh, my city group, uh, since we've been a church, so we started in a living room about two years ago uh, as eight people a, as a city group, and that has multiplied since then four times. So, I've, so four times I've felt the loss of sending my friends, uh, some of my best friends actually, in my life to be in a part of a different city group to see some of the, the best leaders in our church go off to start a new city group. And so four times I've experienced that same thing of multiplying. But what I've also got to see is that we've done far more. We've seen the gospel move far more in people's lives because we've multiplied rather than just keeping our little holy huddle. And so it is a beautiful thing that we get to see the gospel go forward, amen? And, and so the, the, the gospel is not primarily about us going to Jesus, but Jesus came to us, and so we get to continue to proclaim that by multiplication, by our church uh, spreading out throughout our city in that way. And so, man, we're praising Jesus for it. We're also accepting the fact that it's, it's a difficult thing to feel uh, as a family. Um, it's like when you kick a college student out, like it's not always just kicking them out. Sometimes, you know, it, it hurts a little bit. They can acknowledge that. That's okay. Um, but anyway, so that's, that's what we see going on. We want to see the gospel continue to move forward. So this is, this is kind of a culture-setting thing for our church. Uh, this is what we do. We're a church that, that glorifies God by multiplying Jesus-centered disciples and churches. So we're always going to see that happen for our church, Lord willing, uh, as we multiply our family. So to kick off this new season, we're actually going to start a core value series. We're going to go through our core values for three weeks. So that sets the pace for like, this is who we are as a church. This is why we do what we do as a church. And this is what defines our values as a church. And so our core values are just simple directional arrows. It's down up, in, and out. Like very simplistic, uh, and obviously they're a metaphor for something. And so uh, the first one uh, uh, down is the gospel. So God, Jesus, came down for us. He, he lived a perfect life, di- died the death we deserve, and raised from the grave so that we can conquer both Satan, sin, and death. So that's, that's down. And then there's up. Up is simply put formation. So us progressively becoming more like Jesus in our relationship with him. And then uh, in is the family. We are God's family. So he didn't just save us as individuals, but he saved us into a family together uh, by the blood of Jesus. And then out is, is, is the final one. And so we're a family that's on mission. So Jesus went on mission for us. And then we get to, as a family, proclaim that Jesus went on mission for others. And so those are our four core values. And um, our primary core value out of all of those is down, the gospel, right? That, that, that is the primary. And when you first hear that, you're like, wait a minute, why is that even a core value in the first place? Shouldn't that be assumed? Well, here's, here's the problem with the assumption that that's a core value is because uh, a lot of times I think uh, when we hear a person say the name of Jesus or quote some scripture, we automatically believe that they've centered their life on the gospel. Uh, many times Christians' communication of the gospel or even their understanding is more of a superficial uh, 
do-good deeds or, or good advice than it is actually the good news of Jesus Christ. And so we want to set that stage, set that pace that this is our core value. Every other core value actually is a response to down, a response to the gospel. And so we want to make sure we set the pace, get that right, uh, so that everything else flows out of that. And so today, we're going to address down, we're going to talk about down, we're going to get that, but then we're also going to talk about up as well, and just the implication of as, as we grow in Christ, how that's going to form and shape our hearts, amen? And so if you have a Bible, I hope that you do, uh, we walk through text of scripture, so if you have a Bible, open up to 1 John chapter 2, um, and, and so that's what we'll be this morning as we walk through. Uh, I'm going to start out with the first verse, we're going to look at that. It's, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And so, like I said, the first core value I want to look at in this verse is down. Jesus is our payment and our defense. So John says in verse 1, he doesn't want us to sin, which for us is kind of a shocker. What do you mean you don't want me to sin? I am a human being, right? Like, like when you first see that, because we know that from birth we have a sin nature. Since the fall of man, every single human born has sinned against God. We have sin innately built into us, meaning we're not born good, or we're not born even to follow after God it, it, because we have a destructive nature waging war inside of us. And so if, you, if you've been around any small kid, you know this is a reality. Now, I'm not talking about just parentally. I'm talking about if you take a toddler and put them in an 18-year-old body and tell them they can't have cake after dinner, I promise you that scenario is not going to go down the way you think. They're not going to be like, okay, mommy and daddy, no problem. No, they're going to walk up to you, remove your head from your body, set it aside, grab a piece of cake, sit down and turn on Netflix and not have any remorse whatsoever. Okay, maybe some of your parents are like, not my baby. Okay, mine are crazy. But anyway, I'm just saying, you see sin in children just, uh, just so clearly, and you see it in us on display as well. We just hide it better. Uh, in, in Romans 3, 10 through 12, it says, as it is written, none is righteous, not even one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together, they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. You see, the Bible recognizes that we have a sin problem. We all seek after ourselves, and we don't seek after the one and true God. So John is acknowledging that reality. Though we're all born with a sin nature, he's, he's acknowledging the fact that we, as Christ followers, are born into a new nature. We have a nature that actually doesn't have sin as its power over us. We, we're actually, the sin is actually powerless over us. Like, yes, we do sin. However, we have the power to fight that sin. We have the power to, to battle against that sin. And so, see, as a Christian, I, I think we, we, we have this enormous problem with uh, self-defeat. So, so we acknowledge, yes, grace abounds in our sin. And, and we acknowledge, man, in this side of heaven, we will not escape sin fully. So we acknowledge those things. But then in that same movement, we just basically throw in the towel and say, you know what, why fight sin then? Why, why, why fight the temptation that's in my heart if, for some reason, I'm not going to be perfect in this life? But John isn't giving us permission in that. He's act actually, what he's calling us into, he's saying, fight. Like, wage war against your sin. Battle against temptation. Don't give up. Don't give in. Don't throw in the towel. Because according to verse 4, if you look at that, it says, if there, basically it's what it's saying is, if there's no battle, you may not be empowered by Jesus, but actually remaining in your sin, remaining under the power of sin in your life. Uh, Tim Keller, a pastor in New York, puts it this way. He says, if we say, I believe in Jesus, 
but it doesn't affect the way we live. The answer is not, man, I'm going to go and work hard to, our faith, to, to earn our faith, but it's so much so that maybe we haven't truly understood or believed in Jesus after all. You see, the true faith in Jesus doesn't work for salvation, but it does battle sin in our lives. It does battle sin. It does fight against sin in true faith. Now, that begs the question, though, how do you fight sin? And why would you fight sin in the first place? And, and simply put, the short answer is because we know Jesus. We know that he's already paid for that sin, and so therefore we battle against that sin because that's no longer who we are. So through Jesus alone can we wage war on the sin in our life. The gospel isn't for good people just getting better. It's not for you to clean yourself up. No, it's a a group of sinners who have had their sins paid for. In in verse 2, John uses the word propitiation. Repeat it after me. Propitiation. There we go. Hey, half of y'all got it. Good. Uh, So this word... This word propitiation actually encompasses uh, one of the primary parts of the gospel. It's a word that means complete appeasement and relief of debt. It's the satisfaction of God's wrath, basically. So God's wrath is not just this this uncontrollable anger. It's actually a righteous action of, of God against or trying to restore holiness in his world. It's a, it's a right action of God trying to restore holiness in his world. John tells us that in John 36, that the wrath of God is on everyone who does not obey the Son by believing in him. You see, the debt we owe is that we have not lived up to the holy standard of God. We have a debt that is to be paid because we have an unholiness in us. And so the holy God of the universe sent his holy Son to live the life that we couldn't live in order to pay that debt that we owe. You see, because of our sin, we have a debt and we owe God, and and that debt must be paid. It it can't be paid by us, though. Like, you can't look at this debt as like, man, I I got a a little bit of credit card debt. Like, it's not that kind of debt. I know some of you college students took out that stuff right away, and it's like, no, it's not that kind of debt. It's a little easier to pay off, uh, that credit card is. And 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 you can't even just say, man, we got a lot of debt. No, a lot of debt, like a mortgage or a student loan, actually, it doesn't even compare to that. This is an inconceivable amount of debt because we have so much sin in our life and it's so much to be paid back to. And so you can't fix it yourself. There is no federal debt plan for you to get out of debt on this. There's no bailout for you. The bailout is the good news of the gospel that you can't pay it, but Jesus paid it on your behalf. That, that's what the good news is. That's the, the power of Jesus paid for that sin. And so that's how we battle against sin. That's how much God loves us. So notice that in this verse, it starts out with little children. Now, John is talking to an entire church, but he calls them little children because it's it's an affectionate thing to say, hey, I I tell you these things so that you might not sin, so that you might fight your sin because Jesus paid for that sin. I love you is basically what he's saying. Now, one of our really sharp college students, he explained down this week or the gospel uh, in, in our city group. His name is Reed Gahan. Dude is sharp. Here's what he said. We are separated from God, our creator, by sin. Jesus lived a perfect life and died in our place, taking the wrath of God that we deserved and rose again, giving us life through him. By God transforming our hearts to desire to follow Jesus and and live a life of repentance, we enter into a perfect relationship with God. That's what Jesus made possible. A perfect relationship with God and right standing with God. Jesus made that possible. Now, our text uh, says something else. It says that Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. Now, I want to be really, really clear on this one and what he's saying here. What he is saying is that Jesus' death is sufficient for 
anyone who places their faith in Jesus. Meaning, people of every tribe, tongue, and nation, if they place their faith in Jesus, his payment is sufficient for that. Meaning that this is not an American religion. This isn't a a faith based on any particular ethnic group. This is Jesus Christ died for every tribe, tongue, and nation so that others might come to faith in him. So if you're from Cambodia, China, Slovakia, Thailand, or Africa, this is the gospel message for you. And so like we saw in Ephesians, Jesus' death wasn't for one kind of people, but it was for all kinds of people. And so I want to be clear. If you've never placed your faith in Jesus, your debt to God still remains. And the wrath of God isn't actually restrained. Faith in Jesus is the only way to get that paid for. So some of us are sitting here thinking, okay, Mo, gotcha. That sounds great. I understand the gospel a little bit. That message makes sense to me. But I still have sin in my life, and how do I deal with that? Well, look back at verse 1 and see what it says. But if anyone does sin, so he's assuming that's going to happen, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. You see, John acknowledges that sin can and will happen in the Christian life. See, like, don't miss this. This is, this is incredible news for us. Jesus is standing up for us next to the Father. Jesus advocates for us to the Father when his wrath would be completely justified to punish us. And, and so why would Jesus have to do that, though? Why would he have to advocate for us? Well, first of all, because we sin. That's, that's one. That's simple. Uh, the second one, though, is because we have an adversary. We need an advocate because we have an adversary. Adversary is the devil. Revelation 12.10 is very clear. It tells us that uh, he accuses us night and day before the Father because of our sin. And what Jesus does, he stands right next to the Father and says, no, 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 they're mine. I paid that debt. He's our eternal defense attorney. You see, the the devil is a liar, and we get a better defense attorney than O.J. Simpson. In our sin, the glove does fit. However, (laughs) Jesus paid for that debt. He paid for the price for that sin, amen. I'm glad y'all got it. Okay, good. Anyway, <laughs> uh, that's down, right? So Jesus came down to us as our payment and our defense. Uh, look at verse 3 with me as I read it. Verse 3. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Okay, so the gospel gets even better is essentially what we just saw, right? That, that Jesus isn't only the payment for our sin but he's, and, and the defense for our sin, but Jesus is our life and our example. Uh, so th- there's, there's been several times in my life where I've asked the question, man, am I really a Christian, right? Like, am I really a follower of Jesus? And, and, and have you ever read the passage? It's Matthew 7. Jesus says, many will say to me on those last days, Lord, Lord, and he'll say, depart from me. I never knew you. Like, that's a hard text to wrestle with, right, as we walk with Jesus. It's like, man, he, is he going to turn me away? And, and it grows in this insecurity. I, I've sat with people for hours who are like, man, am I, am I really a Christ follower? Is, did Jesus really accept me? And, and so, so here's what's actually happening in our text here is, is that we can be confident. There is a confidence for those who follow Jesus, thankfully. Uh, what John is saying here is that you can know that you know Jesus. You can know that he knows you. You can know that the gospel has truly transformed your heart. And, and so this is what verse is basically saying. The primary evidence of a life in Christ is a life obeying Christ. Primary evidence of a life in Christ is a life obeying Christ. So basically, if you quack like a duck, walk like a duck, fly like a duck, then you're a duck. Like that, that, that's the reality there. If Jesus has broken into your story, his grace then ought to show itself in a continual life of repentance and faith, a continual life of looking different than the way you used to. 
Now, remember this, though. This isn't because you've made yourself a duck. Okay, that, that's not what happened. Uh, God changed your heart. He changed your heart so that you might start to look like him. He's, he, he, he's empowered you to be a duck, so to speak. It isn't because we're awesome, okay? We're not awesome. I know you guys like the dust thing. It's funny. Anyway, as I pointed out earlier, uh, by birth, we are at odds with God. So God had to come in in order to change our hearts to make us into uh, his people. And so, therefore, we can walk as Jesus walked. We can walk toward God. And so if that is the case, if you truly are a follower of Jesus, then your life is progressively turning from your sin and trusting in Jesus, turning from your sin and trusting in Jesus. You see, there should be a change. So I, I met an individual, my wife and I did, about six years ago for the very first time. And it was an amazing experience. We met my daughter, Evangeline. She was born, and she is a wonderful girl, and we love her. And the rest of our life since then has changed, right? It's never been the same since she was born. So how much more for our Savior Jesus once we encounter him? We've encountered the living God, and so there should be a, a more, ch- more of a change, a more drastic change in our life than, than my beautiful, amazing daughter would do in my own life, right? Like, think about the love that he has, has lavished upon us so much so that he, he would be obedient to the Father, putting away his rights, putting away his privileges to the point of death for God's will, so that we can experience relationship and love from God himself. Like, isn't that beautiful? Shouldn't that change our hearts? The only sufficient response to that kind of love is love in response. That's it. In John 14, 15, here's what Jesus said. He tells his disciples, if they love him, they will obey his commandments. This is the same language in our verse right here. Verse 3, if you love me, follow my commandments. If you know Jesus, follow his commandments. If we love Jesus, obey him. That is the call of the Christian life. The gospel is not and never will be, though. Listen to this. It will never be obey God and therefore he'll love you. That's not what that's saying here. For all of eternity, the gospel is we love because he first loved us and gave himself up for us. That's what the gospel is. This text is simply saying that obedience will follow true faith in Jesus. Obedience doesn't justify the believer but testifies of the validity of a person's justification. I'll say it again but slower. Obedience doesn't justify the believer, but testifies of the validity of a person's justification. You see, this, it's the witness of Christ's work in us that we would progressively be obedient because we no longer live the dead life we had, but we have the new, beautiful, living life that Jesus has given to us. We can walk boldly and trust that, and, and it's an assured faith that we have in that life. It's guaranteed to us. Now, I know some of you in the room are thinking, okay, I get that, but... I don't think I'm a Christian because I don't perfectly obey God, right? Like, that, that is kind of the thought in there. Like, and so it's like, man, yeah, I must not be a Christian either, right, by the way? Uh, let, me, let me make a distinction for you really quick about perfect obedience versus progressive obedience. You see, perfect obedience is actually what we place our faith in. Jesus himself perfectly obeyed the Father, perfectly glorified the Father, and we place our faith in him. If, we, if it were possible for us to have perfect obedience— well, then we wouldn't need a Savior, right? Like, we wouldn't need Jesus at all. It would be pointless for him to come and die. It would have been a a travesty for that to happen. But we do need him. So John can't be calling us into a perfect obedience. And to point our text again, verse 1 says that he's speaking to Christians, that every Christian will sin, therefore no Christian will ever have perfect obedience in this life. Okay? So what kind of obedience is he calling us to? Well, he's calling us to...
so what kind of obedience is he calling us to? Well, he's calling us to progressive obedience. Uh, this is obedience that, w- that will falter and fail. Uh, it, it, it will nonetheless move back and forth. We might actually take three steps forward and two steps back, but there's always a progression, right? So, so and, and in this text, when you see the words we know at the beginning of verse 3, it, uh, it implies an assurance. It is guaranteed. Like many people say, man, there's no guarantees in life. Well, this life, Jesus' life, that is our guarantee. He is our assurance. We can walk in that in a progressive obedience to the Father. So, yeah, we may have sin. We may struggle at times, but there should be a battle in us, right? Obedience to God's commands means that we're fighting sin. And there are two fronts that I think that battle kind of wages on. Uh, when we think of sin and we hear that, we usually only think of the sin of commission. It's the sin that we do, right, the wrong things that we do. But the, the one that we, I think we leave out or we miss is the sin of omission. You see, this is, this is not something that we do, but it's something that we should be doing. Amen? And so the sin of commission is based on what we do. It, it's basically asking the question, are you committing sin against God? Are you actively rebelling against God? Or are you faithfully walking with Jesus in obedience to his word? I think most of us are aware of that, right? We're aware of that kind of sin in our life. In fact, that's, that should be our story, right? We, we should be able to say that and say, hey, I used to do this, but by God's grace, now I don't. And so he's changed my hearts and my desires because I'd rather have Jesus, right? Like that, that should be our story. But I think the more difficult one sometimes is this sin of omission, omitting the desires of God in your life. This, this one is a kind of a sneaky one because it doesn't show up on the radar of everybody else. Right, it's not as visible if you decline to walk in God's will. So, so, so when's the last time, Christian, when is the last time that you've asked God to convict you of sin in your life? You see, I think a lot of times when we walk around, we walk around as if like, you know, I don't really do that many bad things anymore, so therefore I must be good. And it's like, God wants more for you. When's the last time you asked God to change your life, change your heart about some situation or a person? That's a harder one, right? Or, or when's the last time that you ask God, man, what is the next step of faith in this journey that you have for me? Can you cause my heart to see what steps of faith, what sacrifices you want me to make to glorify you, to honor you, to praise you with the life that you've given me? See, heart change doesn't come from simply changing your behavior, but God's desire is to change your heart. And over and over and over again, the way you do that is you're spending time with him and meditating on his word and his character and how that's going to shape and form your life. The life we have now is one that's been purchased. It's not our own. It is his. Jesus died and paid the price for our sins, so he gives us his life, his new life, and we get to walk with him through it. So not only does he give us his life, but Jesus gives himself as our example. So we're just not left to like saying, okay, now what does that look like? Well, we can look to Jesus as our example to see that. Look at uh, verse 5 and 6. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. You see, the commands of God that we see in Scripture, the commands that Jesus gives us are for our good, for other people's good, and for his good pleasure. He loves it when his children obey him. And the only way we get that obedience, though, is by sealing his word in our heart if we're progressively following after him, his, his word is going to change our hearts. In fact, our love will grow for Jesus. You see, the beauty of the relationship with Jesus is that it doesn't just stop at you placing your faith in him. Like a marriage, 
Think about it. A marriage doesn't find its end on the wedding day. No, it, it, the wedding day is great, and, and your marriage should, should be great, but it also ought to be progressive. It ought to be growing, getting better, more intimate, more passionate. And in the same way, as a follower of Jesus, it doesn't end when you may have maybe prayed some sort of prayer or maybe when you've given your life over to Jesus. No, it doesn't end there. It actually continues to grow. He wants a deeper, more passionate, more powerful, intimate relationship with you. So if we're growing in our love with God, guess what's going to happen? We're going to obey him. It'll be a byproduct of that. And not only will we obey him, it won't be burdensome. Listen to this promise that Jesus gives in Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. You see that? God isn't calling us to a radical relationship of love and obedience to him in order for him to be some tyrant over our lives. He's not calling us into it just so that we can be these good people. No, he wants to give our souls rest. And that rest is only found in him. It's, it's not through trying harder or trying to be this good person, but by pursuing a deeper, more fulfilling relationship with him. That's what he's calling us into. The good news that Jesus came and died for our sin and went to the grave is good news that changes our heart and changes our relationship with him. And so, so what happens, though, is we want to be around him the more we, we find out about him. The more we experience intimacy with him, the more we want to be around him. And the more we'll want to obey him, right? Like that's the product of that. So look, look at the end of verse 5 into 6 one more time. It says, by this we may know. Again, he uses that word know. It's an assurance that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So it didn't say try harder. It said abide. And it says we can know. We can have an assurance. So, so you see this world says, man, if you live for yourself, if, if, you, if, you, if you do things for your own good pleasure, then that's, that's the way to life. But Jesus says, no, I have a better way that doesn't lead to death and destruction, but I have a way that leads to more life, more rest in me. So whoever abides in Jesus will produce the fruit that comes from Jesus. You see, this is the essence of up, our core value, that we as followers of Jesus who have had our sins paid for ought to progressively be looking like and walking with Jesus. We ought to look more like him because the old self has died and the new one has come. He is the giver of life and the example of that life. So when you walk with someone, over time what happens is you start to take on their persona, right? Like you start to take on their values, you start to take on their personality, their character. Like for instance, my wife, a person that I probably admire more than anyone, I've taken on some of her characteristics. So like before I met her, I hated coffee. I now love coffee. I don't go a morning without it. Like, that's, that's, that's a superficial one. But nonetheless, I really like coffee now, and I, I've taken that on for her. But something that's less superficial is that my, my wife, Colleen, she is kind and super thoughtful, like extremely thoughtful of other people. That's not me. I'm just telling you right now, I'm not the nice guy, and I'm not the thoughtful guy. That just is not a part of my nature. But since I've known her and grown closer to her, that Christ characteristic in her has been imprinted on me that I'm more thoughtful and more kind. I'm not holistically that way yet, but I'm getting there. Jesus is working on me. Uh, but th that is what has been on me. So in the same way with Jesus, the more you're with him, the more you'll take on of him. And so what does that look like? Well, I, I picked out three characteristics of Jesus that we can, we can walk through. One is faith. It looks like walking with him in faith. Not my will, Lord, but yours, right? Like how many times do you wake up in the morning and just jump to the next task? Right? Like, what do I need to do today? What do I have to do today? Rather than asking the question, Jesus, what will you do with my day? 
What will you have me do with this day that is yours that you've given me? Asking that question. We see that example in Jesus. He's at the garden. He's at the footsteps of his own death. And he's kneeling down, praying to the Father, saying, not my will, but thine. Not my will, Father, but yours. And so we have this amazing opportunity because God is our Father that we can walk every single day because of Jesus and his grace. We can say, hey, not my will, but yours. And we know that by walking in that will, we'll resort, resort not only in God's good pleasure, not only in the benefit of others, but also for our own flourishing as well. It's also, it also looks like love, right? Like it looks like love because God spilled out his unrelenting grace on us, and then we have the ability to spill that love and grace on other people, even the ones that are hard to love, right? So think about this. Jesus, again, on his way to his death, he gets spat on. He gets mocked, he gets beat, and he doesn't retaliate. Like he could have smoked those dudes in an instant without a problem, but instead he puts down his rights, he puts down his, 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 his everything that he could have taken up for himself and loves instead. In, in my city group this week, we read uh, 1 Peter 2, 20 through 21. It says, for what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow his steps. You see that? When we are interacting with others, we have this beautiful opportunity in faith to faithfully walk in the love and the grace that we've been given and push that onto them. Because we've, been, we've received so much of it. We've received abundance of grace and love from Jesus. And he is the perfect example of that for us. The other way it looks is, is, is also obedience. We've talked a lot about obedience. And, and so we have a father and, and, and it should look like obedience in our lives. Jesus says this in John six thirty eight. He says, for I have come down from heaven not to do my will but the will of him who sent me. You see, he perfectly obeyed and glorified God to the point of the cross to the point of his death, right? And so now we get the opportunity, not perfectly, but the opportunity to joyfully obey God to the point of life, right? He's given us life. These are, these are just a few of those characteristics, but as you look through the scriptures, as you spend time with Jesus in his word, man, those are the attributes that are continue to be manifested in our hearts and in our lives. You see, God sent his son to come down to us and die so we can be raised up in a new life, a new life in relationship with Jesus. Isn't that beautiful? You see, the truths laid out by John here are, are hard ones, and yet they, they're wonderful at the same time. They, they come from a fatherly heart. Like I said he, said, he calls us little children that presses into our hearts. He doesn't just leave us where we are. He presses in to have us ask some of the questions that we should ask, like, have you truly placed your faith in Jesus? And if you have, then life, your life will reflect that reality, right? It, it will continually progress in repentance and faith in Jesus. And if you haven't, well, you have another opportunity. You have an opportunity to receive that payment that he, he paid for sin. You don't have to clean yourself up or get better. Jesus is offering to walk with you and him in a new life. So when you fail, he doesn't leave you. He doesn't forsake you. He sticks with you. This message of grace is not because of something that you've done, but because of what Jesus has done on your behalf. So there's, there's no other way to be saved. There's no other way to God other than Jesus. Faith 
in him alone. Jesus demonstrates his love so much so that he dies on the cross for your sin. And so the question on the table is, would you give your life to him? Would you give your life to someone who loves you that much? And for the person in the room who has placed their faith in Jesus, man, when we sin and we don't obey perfectly, guess what? We have an advocate, right? We have that defense attorney on our side saying, no, that debt was paid. That fine was paid. It's done. It's over with. It's finished. And we get to live in a a life of obedience to God with an abundance of grace and joy because we know we don't have the weight of our debt on our shoulders. This is good news. So no matter how bad things get, guess what? Jesus paid it all. Like, just remember that. Not, not I, but Christ paid it all. The life of Jesus is the most fulfilling thing that we could ever have in this life. It's far more fulfilling than anything we could imagine. And, and he, wants, he wants us to see what he's doing, right? So we multiplied this church today. And, and what we're seeing is that Jesus is at work in other people's lives. And he did that same thing when he was on earth. He got to see and experience other people having their lives changed. And he's just inviting us along with the, for the ride. Isn't it beautiful for us, for our Father, to allow us to be a part of what he's doing in and through us, but then also other people? Not perfectly, but intentionally, we will continue to obey and continue to see him do the miraculous. Amen? So one of the cool things as a Christian or as a Christ follower that we get is that God says the word remember a lot. Right? Like if you look at all the scriptures, he says remember. Remember, because it's so important. We're so forgetful, right? Like vision leaks. Um, and, and so the, one of the things that we do at City Light every other week is we take communion. And, and so what we do is we take the bread, Christ's body broken for us. It's a symbol of that, and his blood shed for us, another symbol for that. And, and as we consume that, I, I want to call our hearts to this. Like, like, seriously, like, call your heart to this reality. He really did love you enough to come down for you. For you. As an individual, he came down for you. And not only that, he doesn't leave you there, but he wants you to be more like his son. He wants you to be more like Jesus. And so when you consume the bread after dipping it in the juice, just be mindful of that beautiful reality that Jesus loved you enough to die for you and to sustain sustain your life and to give you his life in replacement for yours. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we do thank you so much.